0: Listener Production. Bringing happiness to other people and making them feel the way I feel when someone does that to me fulfills me too. So that's a really nice thing that I take from my religion that um, serving others serves yourself.
1: Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big. And deep, From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. I don't know about you, but in this time of social isolation, I really crave connected conversations. So I'm going to dig deep to give you a new window into the souls of the people we're curious to get to know and understand. There might be tears as well as laughter as we celebrate the real-life flaws and vulnerabilities that make us human. Nazim Hussain is one of the biggest stars of Australian comedy. He does stand-up, is on the telly, and is a writer and activist. Nazim makes me laugh out loud. I've watched all of the episodes of his TV shows, Legally Brown and Orange is the New Brown. I wanted to talk to Nazim about his Muslim faith and the gift he has for making you laugh and challenging the assumptions you sometimes don't know that you make about people. Oh, Nazim, it is so cool to see you. You make me laugh, and you uh,
0: you do. That is my that is my one job. <laughs> So I have no fallback plan. Thank you.
1: Well, you've definitely worked your magic with me. <laughs> I used to love listening to you on the plane. Your first TV series, <laughs> Legally Brown, was on the plane and I would just binge watch it any flight I could oh, get.
0: Thank you. That was uh, a surreal thing because I remember when people used to watch the back of the plane seats. That was actually the only form of entertainment you could have on the like you couldn't look at your mobile phone. And so I would be on the plane looking at people watch me and still be in economy, not be able to point at my face and go, excuse me, can can I go up a class or something? I'm on the screens. I could see people in business class watching me. And I was like, oh, man, I should be up there. It feels embarrassing. But no, no, it was, it was great. I, I I still really surreal that, I don't know, I feel like that series was, was quite a while ago, 2013, 2014, but now it's really starting to find a new audience online on TikTok and YouTube again. And um, yeah, I'm getting stopped on the street by, not, well, for me, children. They're like teenagers going, <laughs> hey, you're that TikTok guy. I love that sketch you d- just did. And I was like, actually, I did that many, many years ago. Please
2: come over here. Hello, I'm a race marshal and you need to come here, please. Right, guys. What did we do, sir? Please come here. Yes, I am a race marshal, which means I am marshalling the different races and you you, and you will need to stay away and you can go enjoy yourselves with the other Bogans. Thank you very much. Excuse me, people of colour, you may go and enjoy your life.
1: Because I think it's what you do in those sketches, it's universal themes and it doesn't date because it challenges people to think about their prejudice, their bias, the way that they lead their lives with blinkers on. And you're able to lift those blinkers but make us laugh at the same time.
0: I feel like some of those themes, well, back in the day anyway, we filmed them, I feel like we're a little, I don't know, people, people weren't really talking about race and privilege and power and all that sort of stuff like we are now. So I think those themes are way more understood now. And in a way, not to say that we were ahead of our time, but the series is right now feeling very relevant, yeah, which is good. Yeah, I think it was challenging making – and it still is doing comedy about stuff that is real, but when it works, it feels really good. When it doesn't work, that's a separate podcast, but that's um, – <laughs> <laughs> it can feel really bad.
1: Well, I want to talk about that with you in a minute when it does feel really bad. But first of all, when it feels good and mm. how was it? I mean, yes, you were ahead of your time. What gave you that sense <laughs> of fearlessness to – do pranks and put yourself in situations where you're going up to complete strangers, blowing a whistle, pretending to be an official. I love that whistle. I'd like that whistle. Where do you get that fearlessness from?
0: Uh, I honestly don't. There's something wrong with my DNA. I don't know. There's something broken in my brain. I've always just enjoyed making my friends laugh. I've always been a bit of a, like, the guy in the group that's, you know, they're like, oh, oh, Nazim will do it, Nazim will do it. I remember, you know, annoying the person at the Macca's drive-in or uh, being someone that would, you you know, play a prank on the teacher so the kids would laugh. Like, I was always someone that did what you're not supposed to do and I got a real thrill out of that. Also, you know, my mum's someone that just says it how it is. She doesn't know how to not do that and I've got, I feel like I've got the same trait. I don't know how to do passive-aggressive. I don't know how to be subtle, so... If there's something that's on my chest, I just have to get it off my chest. And for me, as you've probably seen from the material, it's just stuff that I guess for, well, for me, as a brown Muslim guy in Australia, these issues aren't impersonal. They definitely, you know, come from a a visceral place. So stuff that pisses me off is normally the easiest stuff for me to joke about. I feel like it's a great way to channel that rage through comedy. (laughs)
1: And it is because I would imagine it's empowering to be able to do that, to turn the mirror back on us all and make us question inbuilt prejudices or biases that, in fact, I wouldn't realise that I necessarily have.
0: I always find that interesting when people say that because, for me, my intention is not like how white people understand racism. For me, it's just for me to be able to to, to laugh at something that normally pisses me off, for people who share that experience to feel like we can almost like own it and take the sting out of it and also just to laugh about something so absurd.
2: Have you ever had racist thoughts towards an Indian? No, definitely not. Can you prove that you have never had racist thoughts towards an Indian? How do I prove it? You can't, so you can't prove that you had never had any, any racist thoughts oh, towards an Indian? I like a new human. What is your favourite Bollywood movie? I've never seen one. Okay, that's a cross. Can I just get my taxi and go home? Right. I just finished work, please. Right, do you mind if we just do a quick, a quick breathalyzer test with you? Thank you.
1: Okay, I support taxi drivers not getting attacked. Oh, sure. Okay,
2: I'm actually sensing some level of racism here with this. Yes. Excuse me? You have been deemed uh, a medium-level racist.
0: Yeah, it's almost cathartic for people who share these experiences of being othered to just be able to go, ha
2: ha, now we're laughing at you. It's
0: being able to laugh at the bully together. And if the bully happens to understand, not to say that white people are the bully, but if like people who are on the other end of that equation understand, well, that's like an almost an added bonus, but it's never really my intention to educate. It's more just like, let's flip the power dynamic here and and, and laugh about it, uh, as opposed to just crying about it. Because that's the alternative. If, if I don't laugh about it, I'm just gonna be by myself, just in a rage ball in the corner of my room. Just just pacing around.
1: <laughs> but the thing is you, you don't laugh about it yourself and I was really interested to read how you began doing, I suppose, stand-up when you were doing trivia nights at the mosque. So you kind of had this, you weren't laughing on your own, you suddenly had this almost, I suppose, brotherhood yeah, and perhaps yeah. sisterhood of people <laughs> laughing with you because yeah. they were in the same situation.
0: I grew up um, post 9-11. I can't believe it's already been like nearly 22 years since 9-11, when as a Muslim, like before 9-11, you know, I was definitely connected to the Muslim community because we had a shared faith and, you know, I'd go to, I grew up going to the mosque and study groups and Sunday school and all that sort of stuff. And I was connected to the Sri Lankan Muslim community as well and the Sri Lankan community broadly. But after 9-11, as Muslims in Australia, we all very much kind of came together through this grief of seeing people who were Muslim, commit some horrible atrocities overseas, seeing the West go to these countries, Iraq, Afghanistan, and, um, you know, engage in a war on terror, and then seeing Muslims in Australia and the West then become victims of hate crimes, and having to also explain what it means to be Muslim, what it means to believe in this religion. We were seen as a threat in our own countries. All I know is life in Australia. I've grown up here, I was born here. Yes, I have insights into Sri Lankan culture and Muslim culture broadly, but, you know, I learned that all from living in Australia. So when I did comedy in the community, at mosques and at community events, it was basically just, again, talking about experiences of people saying racist stuff to me or about us or or just life as a Muslim or as an ethnic person in Australia. I I guess growing up, I couldn't relate to comedy on television directly. Like, I understood the jokes. I loved Australian comedy growing up. I was addicted to all the Australian comedy shows, but the stories were never about our experiences. So being able to sort of do that in the community felt really special, joking about our specific stories and lives. And, oh, you know when your mum comes home from the mosque and she, blah, 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 you know, just stuff that only we get. You know, that's kind of how I started doing comedy, just joking about those sorts of things, kind of taking back the mic almost. Like the only times you ever saw Muslims on television were when we were on the news in sound bites, yelling or something. (laughs) Like it was never just normal people being relaxed and talking about normal life. So I guess that's kind of, in a way, the origin story of me doing stand-up.
1: Which, but and I think that is so powerful. And I love it that it's through laughter because laughter To me, laughter is a superpower. I love laughing because it can diffuse so much and it's also a way of kind of uniting people and feeling together and to me it's like the ultimate up yours to be able to laugh your bullies or your enemies in the face because it's kind of like I'm not giving you any of that over me.
0: Absolutely. And even in primary school there were moments when I – probably, I don't even like saying I got bullied. Like there were moments when I could have become someone that was bullied, but because I have a quick tongue and my personality is that I I like an audience. So if there's people there, I'll make them laugh. And so the bullies could never really get away with bullying me properly because they'd become the butt of the joke. And then they would be ganged up on because I would make everybody else laugh and sometimes them. So it was I sort of evaded bullying, but yeah, definitely like you can't, You can't really be angry at someone when they're making you laugh. It takes the heat out of everything. I also feel like it's a really good way to know whether someone's listening to you. Like if they're laughing along, they're understanding what you're saying. Like even if you don't agree with my perspective, if you're laughing, you're you're at least acknowledging the point I'm making because the laughter is sort of like, yeah, it's an acknowledgement. Like it's involuntary unless it's a fake laugh, but it's like an acknowledgement of the point.
1: Well, you're present, aren't you? You're actually in that moment with that person. And more and more, I think, in the world, we crave those moments of presence.
0: Especially like with social media and Twitter, everyone's broadcasting and, and just saying what they think. We're, we're speaking at cross purposes, whereas comedy, yes, it's a guy or a girl or someone on stage speaking, but the acknowledgement has to come back from the audience. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Otherwise, it's just speech. So it is a conversation and you need to be connecting with people yeah, otherwise it's a bad gig. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> You've mentioned your mum and what I love about your mum is that you've referred to her as being pretty gangster and <laughs> even though you said you didn't see yourself as being bullied but there were times when your mum would step in. Tell me that story <laughs> when you went to the bus stop and then suddenly these bullies disappeared. What happened oh. there?
0: I don't even remember exactly what they were doing to bully me. I, I, I think I accidentally blurted it out at home that someone was doing something and then my mum quickly interrogated and said, what, what? And re- figured out that I was getting bullied. I was like, just don't worry about it. Anyway, she did not not worry about it. She worried about it. The next day or the day after I went to school and the bullying stopped happening. I didn't know why. I couldn't figure it out. The bullies started being really nice to me. They started like, I don't know, trying to include me in things and it was very weird. Until a week later, end of the week, Friday after school, I was... School had finished, bell had rung, walking towards the school gate, and I see my mum standing there at the gate with a bunch of bullies from the year level above me, and they were all holding bags of chocolates and lollies in their hands. She had literally bribed that group of bullies to keep this other group of bullies off my back. That's how my mum parented. And,
1: um... (laughs) I'm very tempted to adopt that
0: same style,
1: (laughs) but I adore that because when I think about my daughters and how fierce I am in my protection of them, I would go to that. You do the same thing, of course. I remember this was when they were much smaller. I stole another child's Pass the Parcel prize (laughs) because my daughter was so upset she didn't win Pass the Parcel and I actually (laughs) stole this prize from this four-year-old
0: and that's bad. You know what, it's bad when you tell other people but, like, you know, your daughter was happy, which is the primary aim of being a parent. Make your kid happy. What was it actually? Was it like a was it a good prize? I can't even remember what the actual prize was, but it
1: stopped my daughter having a conniption, and I was just like, "Oh my god, I cannot deal with any more of this crying." So I stole this other child. Well, you're present. a gangster.
0: You're a gangster.
1: I'm going to wear that as a badge of honour. <laughs> you know, your mum, she was a single mum. Mm. She raised yourself and your two sisters. So mm. she's a strong woman, isn't she? She's a
0: strong woman, and. Her and her sisters, none of them finished school in Sri Lanka, just sort of, they weren't poor and very middle class. And my aunties often boast about how my mum got to stay in school longer than the others. But she was, you know, someone that made her way very much on her own. My dad and my mum met very briefly. It was an arranged marriage, which has stigma around it. It's not a forced marriage. They met, they liked each other. They were like, yep, let's do it within a couple of meetings, you know, with their families there. And then they said, yeah, we like each other. So they got married. My dad had studied in England, so he'd spent a lot of time there in the West. You know, he's a very independent guy. He understands, you know, he, he he's lived overseas. My mum had never left Sri Lanka and then they both moved to Australia. And yeah, they lived in Australia, made a life for themselves here. You know, my dad opened up a a printing press. He worked for social security. My mum got a job at Telstra. as like a bookkeeper. Uh, it, it my dad and my mum then split. They got divorced and my dad moved back to Sri Lanka. And then my mum, from the age, from when I was six till, you know, I moved out at 27, <laughs> just raised us single-handedly. Uh, in a country, you know, where everything was very foreign, many things were foreign, yeah. copping all sorts of, you know, prejudice, this, that and the other, trying to make ends meet, working several jobs, you know, trying to put us through good schools. And not just help us survive and get through school, but excel. Objectively, I did very well at school and I um, studied law and science. My younger sister, you know, she's a partner at Morris Blackburn, the youngest partner ever. My older sister is, you know, is very successful at her work as well. She's got a family of kids. They live in a nice area, like from a single mum from another country, lots of debt when my parents split. She, She did an exceptional job. So yeah, I credit a lot of it's kind of like one of these things, you know, when you get when you get successful in anything when you're older. Success matters to me when I know that like my mummy's proud or that I can credit her. Just because she's, you know, that's this is all we're almost like the fruits of her labor. Well, we are, definitely. She sacrificed everything so that we could do what we do. So
1: And yeah. she must be so proud. She's been along to a number of your shows, hasn't she?
0: Oh, she goes to all of them. She can't, in fact, it's impossible to stop her you know, at the Melbourne Comedy Festival, for, for example, I did 22 shows in a row. She will come to perhaps 18 of them. And, you know, I, I will tell her to come on a particular night, but she'll be there. She'll try to hide, but you can see her bright pink hijab and shalwar coming. Like, she she can't, you can't not miss it. You can't see, she's always there. Um, and then I'll acknowledge her. She'll stand up and bow to the audience. One time, I, um, I was, you know, the shows had sold out. Not a boast, it was just the, the fact. And I'd left the show one night I see my mum walking around and I was like, mum! And then she suddenly hid some stuff behind her back. I was like, what are, you, what are you doing? What's that? And she had printed off her own flyers that she'd made and she was <laughs> sticking them around the town hall. And then all these other Melbourne Comedy Festival staff were like, oh, your mum's awesome. Yeah, um, we're telling her that we've already stuck up posters. And my mum's like, there's not enough posters. I can't see my son's face on this wall. And she, she was sticking them up. <laughs> when I was on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, I made it to the grand final. And I think it's probably because of my mum. Again, when I was in there, I had no idea till I came out. She made again her own flyers saying, vote for my son Nazim on I'm a celebrity, get me out. And she went to McDonald's and Hungry Jacks and was handing them out to random people, telling random people to vote for me. So I
1: adore her. <laughs> she,
0: she, she doesn't is, stop.
1: And she is a force of nature, isn't yeah, she?
0: Absolutely. She's very strong-willed and uh yeah, she she cares a lot. Like, she's one of these people, I think when you when you go through tough times, you never lose that sort of hustler personality. So yeah, she no is not something she accepts very easily. She doesn't like being told she can't do something, she'll always figure out a way. You know, when we grew up and we were having it tough, my mum spent a lot of time with other single mums, people from church groups, Salvation Army, people that like were very community-minded. But my mum, even though we were broke at a particular period of time, She spent a lot of time, like, we would go weekly to nursing homes and hang out with very old people just to keep them company, like, so that we would have an appreciation for what we have when we would see people who are lonely. And she always had a priorities, well, she has a priorities in order. um, So that, and, you know, she's never really lost that. So that sort of community mindedness definitely came from my mum's sort of insistence on regularly, um, you know, giving back even when we don't have much to give.
1: And do you think in a way with the comedy that you do, you've inherited that from your mum and you do it in your comedy?
0: Well, I definitely feel like with my comedy, I can't not say everything that's on my brain. So, you know, the stage just gives me an opportunity to say everything. If I'm in a room and my mum's in the room, and even my younger sister, I'm the unfunny one. No. uh, People always say, why are you the comedian in the family? Like your younger sister should be. Um, My older sister's funny, but she's probably a bit more like motherly and my mum she just like if she's in the room you know no one else is 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 getting a word in <laughs>
1: <laughs> that that to me is the idea of heaven to be with someone <laughs> who lifts your spirits who makes you laugh yeah. and makes you feel good and and also what i think i admire enormously about her is that she brought you up at a time when divorce being a single parent was frowned mm. upon within your mm. local community in Melbourne. Yeah,
0: definitely within like the Muslim community, probably more the Sri Lankan community and then and also the Sri Lankan Muslim community. But I think broadly in Australia, like divorce, single mum, single parents, it was the exception. You definitely felt like that was not a normal experience. I, I remember very early on, I think I tried to hide that fact from my classmates. You know, I'm referring to my dad like he was at home, which, he, you know, he wasn't, and just feeling like a shame because it was just very normal. Kids have both their parents or it was very exceptional to have come from a broken home, whereas, you know, times have obviously changed. She's since remarried and, you know, my mum and stepdad just work so well together. My stepdad has the opposite personality. You can be, like, literally, you can sometimes forget he's in the room. <laughs> I remember one time we were filming something and my mum and stepdad were just supposed to be there as kind of you know as guests for this dinner and my mum had walked in and, went, and and then little and the and the, the entire production crew were like okay great got the shot and then someone was like oh what about Nazim's stepdad and he was just standing there quietly just waiting for someone
1: to... <laughs> like oh yeah we forgot about him Aww.
0: but he's so he's so quiet <laughs>
1: well he he's got an inner strength and inner oh, he does and all of yeah. that
0: yeah, he makes her happy and she makes him happy. And it's, you know, it's very protective when she um was like, oh, I want to marry this this man <laughs> it was years ago. And I was like, who is he? What does he want? And, you know, he's much older. <laughs> he's much older. Who am I to um, tell my, you know, but I was like, this, this guy's got to be special. And I was so annoyed when he turned out to be a good guy because I was like, damn it, now they've got to get married.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but she is She's happy. She's happy. Now, I want to talk about something very sad mm. that happened to you with your dad passing mm. during COVID. I, I can't begin to imagine what that must have been like with him in another part of the world as well.
0: My dad passed last year in August from COVID. And, uh, yeah, it, was, it was, I, was, I remember I was at the project, actually, and I think I was finishing the show, like, it was just the last 20 minutes, and I got a text from one of his friends from an uncle, we call him uncle, he's older. Uh, and he said, just letting you know your dad's a bit unwell and I'll keep you updated. And I was, I was trying to keep abreast of what, what he, I was "Oh, what, what do you mean? And he said, oh, well, the, the ambulance is arriving. And then, so then the show had finished and then I went to the car and I tried to call him and it was sort of like un, unravelling throughout the night. As I was, I still had makeup on my face from the project, I remember it was, it was a, quite a surreal experience. And then he said, oh, no, he's tested positive to antigen. And it was all a bit vague and, and I called and it was like WhatsApp. And so it was just, it was cutting in and out. And it happened, I, I think, you know, from that point till when he finally passed, it was about, it was just under 30 hours, I think. You know, as, as many of us know, when it comes to grief, like it's a weird process. It doesn't feel real, especially not having been able to be there. And... You know, like I've discussed with you on this podcast already, my parents split when I was six. But that doesn't really mean the connection between father and son is also severed. You know, every child wants their dad. We were in contact in the last... Well, we've sort of been in contact the entire time, but the last maybe 10, 15 years, we've kind of grown close. I've visited him on many occasions when I've gone to Sri Lanka. We've kept in contact pretty regularly. It was almost feeling like this you know like the the years of absence were being compensated for and then as life does it throws you this curveball and i guess i'm one of the things i'm most pleased with is being able to for both of us my dad and and i and my, my sisters and to be able to almost like very actively put the past behind us and try to make up well not even make up for lost time but just just resume a relationship because when parents split and, you know, I don't think it's as usual now for dads to become estranged. Co-parenting and is more regular, but, you know, it's very easy to, to sort of almost try to punish your parent for what they did. But my philosophy was that that's just wasted time. You know, what is the benefit of that? For me anyway, being self-interested, I didn't feel it was a benefit in, in doing that so what i'm most happy with is that our relationship from when we got back in contact we we just sort of we just tried to well i guess yeah make up for lost time without really dwelling too much on the on the years where he was away
1: which i think is a very sort of selfless but also wise thing to do in the sense that sometimes things are never perfect. Relationships are never perfect. And you have to kind of work out if I want to have a relationship with this person, I have to put aside all this pain.
0: I would often actually ask myself, I'd I'd say, if my dad passed, would I have major regret for not reaching out and trying to maintain a relationship for my sake, for my kid's sake, for his sake, for, you know, my responsibility as as a Muslim to his dad, as a son to his father? And and yeah, the answer for me was that yes, I probably I would have I would have regret or I'm scared of the regret and the guilt and the added grief I would feel if I didn't try my best. At least if I try, I've done everything I can. So I'm always just worried about future pain. And so I just didn't want to feel regret on top of just usual grief and the estrangement, all that sort of stuff. So that was that was one of the reasons why, you know, I maintained a well, I tried as hard as I could to have a good relationship with him. And, and I think my dad came from the same place. Like there's sort of guilt for living away and not making things right. It, uh, you know, I it's hard to know his side of the story. But there's there's sort of, it's fruitless to just almost not try your best to establish a relationship. Maybe you talk about what happened, maybe you don't. But the relationship should exist regardless. And if it, there's a good enough relationship, you can talk about whatever if it's important to either party, But you know. I guess it's also this thing in Islam <laughs> where we are sort of told to constantly consider death, to to just realize that life is limited and that we all end up in the earth. And, you know, when someone dies, people at the funeral are all encouraged to even take a handful of um, sand or dirt and put it on the, on the person who's buried, just so that you know that one day you'll be in there as well. So... You know, I am constantly reminded of death when I think about people close to me because I think it encourages you to appreciate the moments you have, to make things right, to ask for forgiveness, to be a bit more introspective.
1: And I think that's quite an extraordinary way to to think about living. Often I think in Western culture, we don't think enough about death. We're frightened to talk about it. We're frightened to confront it. And because we do that, we live a life Half lived because we're fearful. Whereas, if I think there's that sense of we're all going to die, this is what actually happens, you've got to make every moment count.
0: And it's scary. It was hard when my dad passed, and even now. Like, I'm not very good at holding back, but I am, you know, like it, it, it does feel like it's just under the surface, like a, you know, a, a dam of emotions. But thinking about people who I've spent more time with, like thinking about my mum and sisters and And death, that's too difficult to think about. But it's, you know, it is true. Death gets us all and we don't really know when it happens. We all like to think, you know, after we get our super, got a couple of decades to live it out. But you just never know, especially with COVID and just every... I think COVID just reminded us of just how close death can be.
1: And thank you for, for talking so openly in that way. I'm relieved that you feel that you are able to have that connection with your dad before he did pass, that that, that must give you some sense of solace. Is that the right yeah, word? I think,
0: definitely. I think it's something, and I've had conversations with other friends whose dads may have been out of the picture for a long time or they've got fractured relationships with dad or mum or someone significant in their life to just think of yourself and how you might feel if something was to happen to them. That sounds like a weird threat. But it also does help you, you know, distill what you should do right now. And maybe the answer is to just reconnect for your own sake. And who knows, maybe you might actually like them um, and it might be a nice relationship. <laughs> yes, but, yes.
1: You know, just, there could be something. There might not be, but at least. There might not
0: be. Just but, just regret proof yourself as much as you can.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I love that approach. And you're a dad now.
0: I'm a dad, Yeah. Um, about to be a dad of two. Oh,
1: my goodness.
0: Yeah, being a dad's amazing. It's everything, all the memes say it is, all the cliches. You find out parts of your personality you didn't know exist. I'm like you, you know, I would, I would steal another kid's pass a parcel toy <laughs> for my
1: kid. <laughs> and your mum, you'd get the lollies, bribe Absolutely. the bullies.
0: <laughs> I totally would. But, yeah, my kid's, he's, he's, he's very funny. Again, To to go back to my dad, like I feel like I'm parenting by what I missed out on. So now I'm very, very present. I'm very tactile. He's never going to be out of my sight, that kid.
1: And isn't he a lucky boy? So he, is he what, four now, your son? Turning
0: four, yeah. Turning four in April.
1: And when is your next little one due?
0: Within a couple of months.
1: Oh, that's so Mm. exciting. Mm,
0: Very exciting. So uh, she... Will it's a girl, so oh. Mm, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, can't can't wait. Uh you know, here we go again.
1: And in terms of your partner, mm. you separated from yeah, and remarried. The same woman or no, a, no, different no, woman? a different woman?
0: <laughs> me and my first wife, we separated in 2018, and then a year ago, me and my wife got married, and our baby is due on our one year anniversary.
1: Oh, my goodness. Don't do the maths.
0: Not wasting time. No wasting Mazeem. time. No hey, way. This is, welcome to Muslim culture.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we so, think about death every day, so we're like, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> so then <laughs> talk to me about, in terms of Muslim culture, being mm. divorced mm. and remarried. Um, divorce
0: is, again, in Islam, something that is completely halal. I'm it's encouraged if things aren't working and, you know, me and... Our son's mum, we co-parent and it's a good relationship. We want the best for him. We, you know, we just didn't work out as a husband and wife. There's, so I think the confusion is often around culture versus the religion. Often in places where you, you know, again, the stigma around divorce when my mum was was raising us in Australia was to do with the, cult, you know, cultural stigma around divorce. Whereas religiously, divorce is actually something in Islam that is encouraged, is there as like a mercy for people who are in bad relationships to, to exit them. So religiously, yeah, there's no problem. It's just like, yeah, I, I, thankfully Sri Lankan, cult, my wife is Lebanese, like uh, our families are completely just modern and <laughs> they don't have that those problems. So it wasn't really a problem for us.
1: Do you ever get tired of feeling like the spokesperson for Muslim culture or Islam uh, oh. and... <laughs> South Asia, do you often think, why do I have to <laughs> explain this to everyone?
0: Every Muslim feels that way. Every non-white person with any platform feels that way because there's just so few of us in the public domain. And it's exhausting, especially because I don't really know Jack. And so people just ask these questions. And I'm like, oh, uh, here's the answer, I think. But this is my perspective. But for the audience, you know, I might be the only person they've heard from, from the Muslim community. So... I always tell people, I don't want to be a role model. I'm not a spokesperson because I don't know anything. But, you know, you just get shoved into that position. Kids growing up Muslim in Australia, same deal. I guess like being gay or indigenous, like it's probably the same thing until it's sort of normalized in pop culture, you know, in in parliament, in all of public life, the the very few select individuals that um, have any prominence are taken to be spokespeople. And when they make mistakes, it's like, ooh, it's a huge fall from grace. You know, Walid Ali, just consider him. That guy is exceptional. Like, he's he's never taken a, a step wrong. But, you know, if he does, oh, my God. You know, people are going to be like, I knew it. See? Look, at you know, Muslims this. So it's, it's sort of – whereas imagine if any random white guy on TV said anything dumb. It happens all the time. But people are just like, oh, Michael's an idiot or – Kyle, can't believe you said that again. Whatever. But it's, it's not taken to mean every white person. or.
1: It, and it's not fair. It's not fair because it's too much responsibility. It's too loaded. And we're all entitled to have many different opinions regardless of our background or or where we're from.
0: I think just just, to, just get to know more people.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and be open and, and listen. And, and mm. with Waleed, he's a good mate of yours, isn't he?
0: Oh, he's one of my best friends. Uh, he's definitely my top two, and he's someone who you know he's the smartest guy I've ever met. And I'm kind of jealous that everybody else gets to gets to know him too, because I'm like, oh, don't share my guy. He's he's mine. All
1: right? <laughs> he's my <laughs> I, brother.
0: He's my bro. Again, like I've known him for ages, and you know I used to we used to talk for hours and hours. I just remember even when I used to live at home with my mum, I used to be on the phone to him till like two two a.m. Sometimes just just talking about stuff. And conversations are never substanceless with him. He's a big thinker. Well, he's a
1: walking encyclopedia, I think. He's a walking encyclopedia. Whether it's politics or sport or (laughs) pop culture, whatever. He's sort of got this extraordinary theory around it. Something that made me angry on your Mm. behalf was how people confuse or have confused the (laughs) two of you. I mean, there was a TV guide that
0: I know, it happens all the time.
1: It's like, but that I is know. outrageous.
0: I'm just gonna put my hand up. I have confused white women a lot. So <laughs> but I don't know, like I don't I think I get it. <laughs> in people's brains, they're like, oh, brown Muslim man. And so there's only two names in that box. So they kind of reach for whatever one. They just put their hand in and they pull out Nazim or Walid. I'm always flattered because it's Waleed. You know, being confused for one of the smartest people is an honor. But I don't know how he feels when someone's like, hey, I really like that. Joke you made about your mom.
1: <laughs> and the whistle blowing the whistle of people and the
0: clipboard. Exactly. Oh, this is hilarious. So I went to um I was hosting the TikTok live event in Sydney. It was a full-on event. They had like maybe a thousand people in the crowd and some big stars were there. Anyway, I was backstage. I got a DM on Instagram from some guy who just said, Hey Nazim, I've just been let backstage into your dressing room because. The security just – he basically, some guy had walked as a, as an audience member, to you know, to come into the event, and then they said, oh, write this way. And then they just took this guy past all the levels of security backstage into my dressing room because they thought he was me. He looks nothing like me. I'll oh. send you the photo. Uh, like, it happens all the time.
2: Uh,
0: I don't understand. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, yeah, if you want to get backstage into a show of mine, just be – any shade upwards of white, um, <laughs> and you'll you get a free ticket. <laughs> oh, that's I'm not... here to perform.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm laughing, but then I think, should I laugh at that or not? Ah, uh, Did... I find it funny. Well, he finds like we just find it's not,
0: you know, it's uh, it's almost like a, it's just it's just a reality now. It's an it's funny more than it is like a you know, a, a huge grave act of racism. And like this is sort of unconscious stuff that people don't intend, but it is symptomatic of like how how few of us that like, but also mathematically it doesn't make any sense. If there's only two of us, surely you should be able to know our names and faces. You've only got to learn two of us. Whereas there's like hundreds of everybody
2: else.
0: I don't know. Look, I don't understand it, but I find it funny. And it's great to play on. Um, we actually did a sketch on, on Legally Brown where I pretended to be a bunch of non white celebrities and took photos and autographs with people. And most of the time, people didn't, didn't really uh, think twice when I was pretending to be Will I Am <laughs> <laughs> or Sachin Tenduka. Like. Autographs.
2: Get your autographs with the great Sachin Tenduka. Hello.
0: Oh, Hello.
2: Hello. <laughs> Hi, right, what should I make it up to? Do you like watching me play? Yeah, you're yeah. good, yeah. yeah you. are very good. You're a bowler, aren't you? No, no, I'm one of the greatest batsmen in the oh, world. Oh, sorry. You know who I am, right? Yeah,
0: I know who you are. Oh, of yeah. My husband is going to have a heart attack.
2: Look, it looks more like me when I take my glasses off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, you look a lot younger, actually, in person.
0: <laughs> I think I was in a vengeance in Sydney. <laughs> yes! And people were coming up, taking photos. I was Jacob from Twilight. <laughs> and there's a big photo of the actual <laughs> celeb just
1: next to me. <laughs> so it's a phenomenon. There it is again. You're using laughter to be subversive and twist things around. It's sensational. I mean, if you can't profit from this, what's the point? Yeah. <laughs> what I want to ask you about, and I admire enormously, I struggle with faith myself. I struggle with religion. I believe in some higher good, some higher force. So mm-hmm. when you talk about being a Muslim and your faith, what does that mean? For you
0: for me it gives me like great comfort muslim faith is kind of part of my culture now like doing muslimy things gives me a sense of community and belonging but also i feel like it just helps me stay centered and remember things that are more important than my day-to-day you know the ritual parts of faith are often very helpful so you know for muslims we have to pray five times a day those are five times of the day where you have to stop what you're doing and kind of almost meditate or think about things bigger than you that you are a small person in a large universe and there's a lot to be thankful for and you know a lot that you can do to improve and then you you know then you go on with your day and then you have to stop again to pray fasting i think for me that helps me appreciate what i have and and think about people that have less like we're encouraged to give charity you know so i think Religion, and in all religions, these these are sorts of things that happen, you know, people are encouraged to be charitable and think of community and put others before yourself. So sometimes for me, that structure, even if you're just a self-centered person, that structure, if you are a religious person, it it makes you do things that are better than you are. (laughs) And, you know, if you are what you do, well, then I, I think in many circumstances, religion makes you a better person. But people find that in everything, you know. You don't need to be religious to do good things and be a good person. But for me, I find it helpful and I do believe within my heart that there is something, that there is a God and a creator and we all need to be good humans to each other. And But, you know, that's not for everybody.
1: But I love that it's for you and, yeah, and that you yeah. talk about it. <laughs> and in a way, I envy that. I find it hard to grapple with some sort of, higher force or that there are other things happening.
0: So do people of faith. It's not something that you're just like completely certain about at all times. It's not linear. And yeah, you're constantly questioning and it's a constant search and a constant question. I don't like blind following. And I don't think that's good for anything, for anybody. Atheist, religious, agnostic, whatever. I think you should always be questioning. And well, within the Islamic tradition anyway, that culture of questioning and probing interrogating those who know and just kind of always the stories of like many scholars going away really trying to find themselves finding themselves helps them find god etc etc it's all very much part and parcel of being a religious person to have that questioning nature to look within understand you know your personality Uh, we can go into this a lot but there's lots of different aspects of religious life that i think people just don't really know or think about i guess when especially as as a comedian, other comedians will talk about religion in very simplistic terms, like, oh, the man in the sky, blah, all that sort of stuff, which, you know, it's funny, but it's also just not very, I don't think that's representative of how religious people normally think of their relationship with God or religion or faith, and also their relationship with people that aren't of faith. Like, I don't walk around, like, thinking people who don't believe in God are any less or anything.
1: It's fascinating because is there something that for you – is the best thing about your faith or the most beautiful thing? Is there something that Mm. makes you feel complete?
0: I I really like the idea of community and wishing for others what you wish for yourself. You know deep down what you like and what makes you happy, but we're instructed to think of others in the same way And, and none of you truly believe until you believe that. So... That for me is like a guiding principle to, again, to be a good Muslim, being self-interested. I would like to, you know, do the right thing as a Muslim. So bringing happiness to other people and making them feel the way I feel when someone does that to me fulfills me too. So that's a really nice thing that I take from my religion, that I'm serving others serves yourself.
1: And that is what you do with your life and your career, don't oh, you? Oh, no, no. You don't, I have, you we do. haven't talked
0: about my day-to-day fair evading you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sneaking backstage to gigs. No, you know, I'm, in, I'm like... Being I'm an a,
1: imposter.
0: Exactly, being an imposter. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guy who, um, who shouldn't be audited. No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but seriously, you do that in your life. With, oh, with look, I also make
0: a lot of fun of people on stage. Look, these are the ideas... But then the the reality of Nazim is very different. Uh, I'm not that guy that we've just been we've just been talking about ideas. I, I don't want this podcast to come out like I'm some holy guy. I'm an I'm a clown. Oh, I, I am a clown.
1: But you can be a clown and a holy guy. Is there anything that you would not find funny that you say is off limits in comedy?
0: Ooh, I don't know where I stand on this question anymore. Like I, I just think if it's funny, should be able to just say it. If it's funny, it's got to be funny. So the pricklier, the subject matter, the funnier you've got to be. But I just, I'm sort of a little bit off the idea that you sh- that comedians should be unable to joke about everything. I was talking to another artist, a musician, and he was basically saying, yeah, it's kind of like you need all your, you need all the paint brushes and all the paint there to be able to make your art. And then, you know, to sort of say, no, you can't use blue, r- limits you from the start. But I don't know. I feel like, yes, the audience will be able to tell where your heart's at. You know, if you're talking about a horrible topic, well, your target better be correct. Because if you're making fun of someone that is ordinarily humiliated, you know, I don't know if people are going to find that good or funny. So, you know, it's up to you as the artist or as a performer to figure out what you should joke about. But I tend to try to joke about things that have the right target. So I'm not going to make fun of. Poor people necessarily, or you know, or women or gay people, whatever, because why? Like, uh, why do they need to be the butt of the joke? Uh, so, yeah. you're
1: about laughing at the tall poppies, really? Yeah, or just or look, pulling them down a bit.
0: Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think that's always fun. You know, <laughs> I think it's fun for the audience. I think it's just whatever's fun and funny, I'll do. And that tends to be when you're making fun of people that. Are, are, are normally up there that are higher uh, up on the social chain than you are. That's always fun. But that's kind of the point of comedy. You, you're just you're a you're a clown. Make fun of people that you're not normally allowed to make fun of.
1: You are
0: incredible. You uh, are.
1: No, you are. And I'm so <laughs> grateful for all of the time that you've given us and how you've opened yourself up in lots of different ways because I I think there's so much to you and I have loved having the luxury of this time to talk to you about so many different things. Thank
0: you very much, Jess.
1: And you make me think and that's what I think is really... No, you do, but in a good way.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Jess.
1: Oh, there is so much about Nazim that I just want to talk to more about. And you know what? I'd love to have a whistle with him and stand next to him with a clipboard and do some crazy comedy. Now, Nazim is returning to stand up stages around the country this year with a brand new show, Hussain That. For complete tour and ticketing details, visit livenation.com.au. And for more beautiful, big conversations like this, search the Jesro. Big Talk Show podcast. And you know what? While you're there, I would love you to follow and to add me to your favourites. I mean, surely I'm a favourite already, but if I'm not, make me a favourite, because I never, ever want you to miss an episode of my podcast. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show was presented by me, Jess Rowe, Executive Producer Nick McClure, Audio Producer Nikki Sitch. Supervising Producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.